just days after Grover Cleveland won the Democratic presidential nomination in 1884, the Buffalo Evening Telegraph published a shocking expose. The paper revealed that a decade earlier, Cleveland allegedly sexually assaulted Maria Halpin, a woman he was infatuated with, causing her to become pregnant with his child. According to Halpin's affidavit, when the child was born, Cleveland used his political influence in the city to have Halpin committed and sent the child to an orphanage. Like Cleveland before him, Warren G. Harding also had a secret out-of-wedlock child, a daughter he conceived with a 19-year-old woman named Nan Britton. He also carried on a long-term affair with the wife of a local dry goods store owner who blackmailed him for $50,000 and a cruise to China during the 1920 election. But Harding's scandalous behavior didn't end when he left his bedroom. His cabinet members, known as the Ohio Gang because of their wanton corruptness, were involved in so many shady dealings, the Teapot Dome scandal stands at the top of the list, that Harding left office with a reputation as one of the worst presidents in U.S. history. Other examples of scandals. The Watergate scandal under President Nixon. The Iran-Contra affair under the presidency of Ronald Reagan. Scandals are not limited to the political sphere. The church has had its fair share of scandals as well. We don't have to look too very far to find them. All of these scandals, and there are many, both in history and today, give, tell us that we have become a culture of scandals. But though that may be the case, know this truth, that those involved in scandalous behavior cannot stop God's will from being carried out. There are people in this world who see all of these scandals and will begin to question whether or not God is even at work. Does God even exist with all of these scandals? But those involved in scandalous behavior cannot stop God's will from being carried out. We're going to see a scandal in the chapter we're going to look at this morning in Genesis chapter 38, verses 1 to 30. Before I go into the chapter, I want to define, define what I mean by scandal. What is a scandal? What is scandalous? I'll give you some definitions. A scandal is an action or event regarded as morally or legally wrong and causing general public outrage. A publicized incident that brings about disgrace or offends the moral sensibilities of society. Damage to reputation or character caused by public disclosure of immoral or grossly improper behavior. Disgrace. Scandal. Those involved in scandalous behavior 
will not be able to stop God's will from being carried out. So let's take a look at those involved in scandalous, scandalous behavior because the character we're going to look at this morning, his name is Judah, is in such a scandal. So we begin with my first point. Number one, those involved in scandalous behavior will be primarily concerned about their own interests. What do I mean by interests? I look up this word interests in this dictionary, uh, Collins Dictionary of Sociology. Interests is this, the particular social outcomes held to, to benefit a particular individual or group. A particular social outcome held to benefit a particular individual or group. So let's take a look at verses 1 through 6. Listen carefully. It came to pass at that time that Judah departed or went down from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was at Kezib when she bore him. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and, named, and, and her name was Tamar. Did you see what the author has done? Judah goes down to Canaan, and he takes a wife for himself. He has three children. The first child is named by whom? Judah. Who names the other two children? The wife. Why does Judah have a particular interest in naming Judah only, uh, naming uh, Ur only? Why does he do that? Not only does he take particular interest in naming this child, he also makes it a priority to find a wife for this child. He does not find a wife for the other two children, only, the, only Ur. Why? Because it's his firstborn. That's why. And what's important with the firstborn? The firstborn is going to be the child that's going to prolong his, Judah, name and his lineage. He has a particular interest in his own future. And the author portrays that by showing us that he names his son, his firstborn, and finds a wife for him. He doesn't find a wife for Onan. Onan is of marriageable age. But he has no interest in Onan. He has an interest in Ur, not because of Ur himself, but because of what Ur represents for him. Do you see it? This tells us that, first of all, that those who are involved in scandalous behavior are often concerned with their own interests, number one. Number two. Those involved in scandalous behavior will often have no genuine concern about the interests of others, though they will often give the appearance that they do. Verses 7 through 11. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. 
and the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and marry her. Literally, perform the duty of a brother-in-law and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that, there, that the heir would not be his. And it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he emitted on the ground lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord. Therefore he killed him also. Verse 11, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said to himself, Lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. What is going on here? Follow along because you have to, there's a lot going on here. You have to be very familiar with the culture. The first thing we see that the Lord kills Ur because Ur was wicked. We don't know why God did this. The author is not inclined to tell us. It's not important to the story. So don't dwell on why God killed Ur. That's not important. What is important is what God did with Onan and what was, what was Onan doing. When, when Ur dies, Judah tells Onan, go and marry your sister-in-law. So what's going on here? This is called the Leverite marriage. In the Old Testament, it's in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. That's where you will find the laws concerning the Leverite marriage with regards to the Jewish people. This event is taking place prior to the law being given, but there were customs that were familiar or similar to that that would eventually become the Jewish law. The Assyrian people were accustomed to it. The Hittite people were accustomed to it. So we see here that there was something similar to a Leverite marriage in this particular culture. And Judah is aware of it, and he says, your brother died, Onan. I want you now to marry your sister-in-law. Now, a Leverite marriage is when a man marries a woman, but then he dies with no children, okay? And a Leverite marriage means that the brother of the deceased man is now going to have the responsibility and the obligation of marrying his wife, his dead brother's wife. Why would that happen? So that he could prolong the dead man, his dead brother's name and produce offspring that would be considered the deceased brothers, okay? And the term uh, leverite comes from the Latin word levir, L-E-V-I-R, which means brother-in-law. So a Leverite marriage is marrying your brother-in-law from the widow's point of view, all right? So that was one of the reasons why that you had a Leverite marriage, was so that the deceased person who had no children would therefore have children when his brother who was remaining would marry his wife and have a children for the deceased brother. There was another reason why you had a Leverite marriage, was so that the woman, who is a widow now, would find protection and economic stability by marrying the brother. In, those, in that culture, if you were a woman, you, you would receive economic stability and protection from men. And if you were a woman before you were married, you would get that protection and economic stability from your, your father and from your brothers. Once you were married, you got that, those same things from your husband or from his brothers. So there was an obligation for a person within the family who had a brother who died without children to marry that, 
your, your, your dead brother's sister to carry on his name and to offer protection for the widow. Okay? If a brother did not do that, he had the option to decline. If the brother did not do that, he was to be publicly humiliated and shamed. He would go to the elders and say, I don't want to take up my responsibility in marrying my deceased brother's widow. And what would happen is, is that the woman would come and take off the brother who was unwilling to take up his obligations. He would take off her shoe, and then she would spit in his face publicly. That was the way that they expressed shame. Okay? And so Onan is going to take up the responsibility. He doesn't want to be shamed. Who wants to be shamed publicly? He's not going to do that. So what he does say, okay, Dad, I'll do it. So meanwhile, everyone thinks that he's going to be doing his responsibilities and fulfilling his obligations as a Leverite brother to his deceased brother's sister, and he's going to He's going to provide a child that would be his brother's. That's the appearance of it, right? But notice the text says he doesn't want to do that because you know why he didn't want to do that? It's because he understood that Ur was the oldest brother, which means he's going to be the recipient of the double portion of the inheritance. And when the brother who was the firstborn died and had no children, guess who was getting the estate? The next brother. In this case, it would be Onan. And Onan wants that estate. So what's he going to do? He wants to portray himself as a godly person, fulfilling his obligations as a Leverite brother, but he doesn't want at the same time give, lose his inheritance. So what does he do? He secretly, every time he becomes sexually intimate with, with uh, Tamar, he, he, he spills his seed on the ground. So he can never impregnate her, which means she can never have offspring. So everyone else from the outside thinks that she's just, she's just infertile. When he's really not doing his responsibilities, but he wants everyone else to think that he actually is. What a clever, shrewd person Onan is. No one recognizes it except one, God, and says, no, you're done. Onan was giving an appearance that he had a genuine concern for his wife's well-being, his sister-in-law's well-being, but he did not. Judah does the same thing, the father. Judah said, after that incident, Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till my son Sheila is grown. Meaning, when he says remain a widow, it means that he is keeping her from marrying outside of the family. She has to wear mourning clothes. She cannot go out and start life anew, which means she has no future. Who's going to protect her? Judah didn't want to do it no more. That's why he's sending her to go back to her father's house. He didn't want to do it for a reason, because he thought all of his sons were dying because of her. Judah had no idea that his sons were wicked, but God saw it. So he tells her, go back to your father's house and put on widow's clothes. And then he says what? He says, till my son is grown, for then he said to himself, lest he also die like his brothers. In other words, he was being disingenuous with his words. He was saying to her one thing, when in his own heart, 
I'm not going to do it. He too was giving an appearance of being sincere, looking out for her best interest when he really wasn't. All of this to simply say this truth, that those involved in scandalous behavior will often have no genuine concern about the interests of others, though they will often give the appearance that they do. That's what's going on here. You see it? By the way, when I read that portion of Scripture, it reminded me of what took place in Acts chapter 5. If you're familiar with the New Testament, are you familiar with Ananias and Sapphira? In Acts chapter 5, what did they do? They saw people, the whole church was together as one. They were buying and selling. No one had lack. No one had need. Ananias and Sapphira saw people within the church who were selling their property, and then they would take the proceeds and they would give it and lay it at the disciples' feet. That's what, that's what people in the church were doing at that time. Ananias and Sapphira saw that, and they said, we want to do the same thing. So they, took, they sold a piece of property, and what they did is they took the proceeds from the property, and they gave a portion to the disciples, giving the impression that they were giving all, but they only gave a portion, and they kept the pro, some of the proceeds back to themselves, giving the impression that they were being sincere and godly and holy when they really weren't. And what was God's response? The same thing as he did with Onan. He struck Ananias and Sapphira down. Same thing. God does not like when people are acting one way and doing something else, trying to portray that they're holy when they're not. Because though we may not see everything, the God of heaven does. Now, I don't know all the implications between the two stories, but there is a similarity there. Again, those involved in scandalous behavior will have no genuine concern about the interests of others, though they will often give the appearance that they do. Thirdly, those involved in scandalous behavior will have their hypocrisy exposed. Verses 12 to 14. Now, in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died, and Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shears at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself, and sat in an open place which was on the way to Timnah, for she saw that Sheila was grown, and she was not given to him as wife. It is interesting to note that Judah, when his wife died, mourned and was comforted. When his two sons die, nothing. But what's interesting is that after his wife died, he mourns, and then he goes to shear his sheep. If you're not familiar with sheep shearing back in those days, it was a festive occasion, sheep shearing. There was a lot of drinking, and there was a lot of promiscuous sex at these events. So what he does after his wife has died, he's a free man. So he's going to go up as a sheep shearer and have some fun. An informant tells Tamar that her father-in-law is now going up to shear his sheep, and she knows what he's up to, and she don't like it. You know why? Because she's at home wearing widow's garments. She, too, like Judah, was mourning the loss of a spouse, 
And yet he has the freedom and the privilege to go do whatever he wants to do, but he has restrained her from doing the same thing. And she's mad. So some anonymous person tells her that hey, he's going up to do, he's going up to the sheep sharing. You know what goes on there. And she's angry. We call those people who are informants today, who remain anonymous, we call them whistleblowers. You may have heard the term in the media. That's, the, that's a whistleblower. So what does she do? She covers herself with a garment, and she sits in the open place. The text kind of gives you an indication that the reason why Judah recognizes her or turns to her is because she was wearing a veil as if to suggest that the reason why Judah would know that she was a prostitute here was because she was wearing a veil. That's really not, most likely that's not the case. Uh, the reason why she was wearing a veil was to cover her identity. The reason why Judah knew that she was a prostitute was most likely the location where she was. And the text here in the New King James Version isn't the best translation. Literally, the open place where it says here that she sat in the open place it's literally the gateway or the entrance of Enaim. She was sitting at the entrance of Enaim, and the word Enaim literally means the opening of the eyes. What she is doing is exposing his hypocrisy. That's what she's doing. At the place of the opening of the eyes is where she's going to expose his hypocrisy and duplicity. You're telling me to do one thing, but you're doing something opposite of what you're telling me to do. And she calls him out on it, and she exposes it for everyone to, well, what will be everyone to see. This is telling us, her actions here in these verses is telling us that those involved in scandalous behavior will have their hypocrisy exposed, and that's what's happening here. What do we mean by the word hypocrisy anyway? The origin of hypocrite. This common word has a dramatic origin story. A number of different things might pop to mind when we hear the word hypocrite. Maybe it's a politician caught in a scandal. Maybe it's a religious leader doing something counter to their creed. Maybe it's a scheming and a conniving character featured in soap operas. But it's likely that the one thing that doesn't come to mind is the theater the word hypocrite ultimately came from, uh, into English from the Greek word hypocrites, which means an actor or a stage player. The Greek word itself is a compound noun. It's made up of two Greek words that literally translate as an interpreter from underneath. That bizarre compound makes more sense when you know that the actors in ancient Greek theater wore large masks to mark which, which character they were playing. And so they, were, they interpreted the story from underneath their masks. The Greek word took on an extended meaning to refer to any person who was wearing a figurative mask and pretending to be someone or something they were not. And that's exactly what's happening to Judah right now. He's being unmasked. When I think about this passage, I am reminded that we are living in a world today when everyone is wearing masks. I can't help but think about this one thought, this one question. Have we become a world that is filled with hypocrisy? Is God saying something to us 
Have we become a world, a humanity, that is characterized by hypocrisy? I don't know the answer to that question, but I cannot help but make the link with what's going on here, with what's going on in our society. Fourthly, those involved in scandalous behavior will have their identities revealed in the near future. Verses 15 to 19. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her by the way and said, please let me come into you, for he did not know that she was a, his daughter-in-law. So she said, well, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, I will send you a, a young goat from the flock, which in those days was, okay, it was, it was not cheap. So she said, will you give me a pledge till you send it? And then she said, what pledge shall I give you? So she said, your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. Then he gave them to her, and he went into her, she, and she conceived. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil, put on her garments of her widowhood. In that transaction, what has happened is that she ended up bartering a deal where she ended up saying, okay, if you want to have me, then I want to have collateral until you pay me. And he says, well, what do you want? I want your signet, your seal, your cord, and your staff. What are those things? The, 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 the seal or signet ring could have been one of two things. It could have been a cylinder seal that would have been used to uh, uh, identify the person who was wearing it, a seal. Or it could have been like a, a, a signet ring that you would impress upon clay to mark or to, uh, to um, sign documents. Okay? The cord would have been something that you wore around your neck that would have had the cylinder seal or the ring. Okay? And then you had the staff which was used as, as a symbol as authority, uh, but it was also something that he would have used uh, in his work, but it was also identified. The signet cord and staff would have been something uh, similar to our driver's license and credit cards. It was a form of identification. And by doing this, he's giving over his identity to someone else. He has now been exposed, and his identity that he is now giving up is going to be revealed at a later time. Simply to say this, that those involved in scandalous behavior will have their identities revealed in the near future. They have been, he will be, they will be exposed, and their identities will be revealed. That's what God's word is saying. Number five, those involved in scandalous behavior will have as their primary concern the maintenance of their own reputation. That is true of people in scandals. Isn't that true? Verses 20 to 23, and Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I can't find her. Also the men of the place said there was no harlot in this place. And then Judah said, Well, let her take them to herself, lest we be shamed. Literally, lest we become a laughingstock or laughed at. For I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. What was his concern? His own reputation. I don't want getting out 
I don't want what has happened and what I've done getting out. So I don't want to be ashamed, so let's not push the issue. His number one concern was himself and to, to maintain his own reputation. And that is true today for those who are in scandals. The priority number one is to cover it up and make sure that my reputation is not tarnished. Number six, those involved in scandalous behavior will often respond harshly to those who are guilty of the same moral failure as they are. Verse 24, and it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. Listen to his response. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Jewish law, when it later came out, only had two offenses uh, when a person was to be burned. That's when it was a prostitution by a priest's daughter and incest with one's mother-in-law. Neither one is here. You can see the response. He is indignant over the wrong and the immoral failure of somebody else. And he was extremely harsh in his judgment of her, yet he was guilty of the same thing. And that's often true of people involved in scandalous behavior, that when they see unrighteousness or a moral shortcoming in somebody else, they are the first ones to point the finger. It's usually harsher than it should be, and they are guilty of the very same thing and don't mention anything. Number seven, those involved in scandalous behavior will more likely than not acknowledge their own moral failure out of necessity, not by choice. Verse 25 and 26, when she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law saying, by the man to whom these things belong, I am with child. And she said, please determine whose these are, the signet and cord and staff, so Judah acknowledged them and said, she has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Sheila, my son, and he never knew her again. The only reason why he acknowledged his wrongdoing is because there was overwhelming evidence to point in that direction or else he would have never said a word. And those people today who are involved in scandals predominantly when they acknowledge something, it's only because they have evidence mounted against them. It's not because they're being convicted morally and says, I have sinned against God and against you. I confess my sin. For those who are publicly revealed in scandals, it's too much to lose, and they're not willing to do that uh, on their own conviction. So this tells us that those involved in scandalous behavior will more likely than not acknowledge their own moral failure out of necessity, not out of by choice. This is what's going on in God's family that is to become a nation that is already starting to splinter, as we saw last week. And we're seeing how, how, how immoral this family has become, at least with Judah. And one may be wondering, what in the world can God do in the midst of a scandal? That's the question. And this brings us to the final point, number eight. Those involved in scandalous behavior can't stop God's will from being carried out. Watch what happens as a result of all this scandal. Now it came to pass at the time for the, for the giving birth that behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was when she was giving birth 
that the one put out his hand, and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand, saying, This one came out first. And then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly, and she said, How did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Now, what's the significance of this? If you know your Old Testament, Perez ended up becoming an ancestor of whom? King David. And then King David was the ancestor of Jesus Christ, which makes Perez the ancestor of Jesus, who is the redeemer and savior of all mankind, which tells us that no scandal that we see and experience in this world can limit God and what he wants to carry out in his purposes in this world. None. Isn't that something? So, people of God, when you see and you hear of scandals that are going on in our society, in our culture, among those in power, whether they be in the political sphere or in the church, they cannot stop God's purposes from being carried out in this world. And the story of Judah and Tamar in Genesis chapter 38 says so. Not because the preacher says so, but because God's word is saying so. It's there for all of us to see. Praise the Lord. And when we think about Jesus and we think about this story, we think about the lineage in Matthew chapter 1. And in that lineage, there are five women listed that Matthew mentions. And you say, why are five women mentioned in the lineage in Gospels Matthew, uh, Matthew's Gospel? Why is that? Why are those women there? It is interesting that every single one of the women, women listed, there is Rahab, uh, there is Tamar, which we have just seen. We have Rahab, prostitute. We have Ruth. Ruth chapter 3, we did a study in Ruth chapter 3. If you remember, it was scandalous how she approached Boaz to get him to marry her. And then we have, finally, we have, we have Bathsheba and her affair with King David. And then we have Mary. All five women either were a part of or gave the appearance of a scandal, sex scandal, including Mary who to Joseph thought that she was unfaithful. And it took an angel of God to be sent by God to vindicate her before him. God can do anything and no scandal by no matter who the person is and how powerful they may be is going to keep God from accomplishing his purposes in this world and in your life and in mine. That's what this chapter is all about. And of course, the scandal of Jesus' birth will lead to the scandal of the cross where Jesus is going to lead his disciples into the upper room. And after they had eaten, Jesus said to his disciples, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After he said those words, he also took the cup and said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you 
and for all men and women so that your sins may be forgiven. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Is not the cup that we bless a participation in the blood of Christ? Brothers and sisters, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. And we're going to partake together this morning. If you have brought your own elements, that's fine. I'm going to walk around the room and pass them out. We do have some, some wafers and juice here. So I'm going to walk around the room and just pass them out. And just hold on to the elements until uh, I, everyone has received them and they will partake together. The body of Christ that has been broken for you and me at the cross. Let us partake together. The blood of Christ that was shed for you and for me at the cross at Calvary. Let us drink together. Would you please pray with me? The Father, we just are so blessed to be your people and that you invite us to have communion with you and with our brothers and sisters of the faith. We thank you that you give us the privilege of coming together as a body and, and having this meal with you as we remember the cost, the sacrifice of you, Lord Jesus, on that cross. The suffering, the selflessness, the love that you have for all of us. Lord, we are indebted to you. Our hearts, our minds, our souls, our spirits. May we give these up to you to do with as you wish. Help us to be holy vessels to be used in your glorious honor for your glorious namesake. May we be nourished with the truth of your word and be empowered by the power of your spirit to live a life of holiness and righteousness and justice in these days. Knowing that you're with us for you sent us out into the world not alone for you promised that you would always be there with us and for this we are eternally grateful and thankful. We give you all the glory and the praise and the honor that you alone deserve. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. Our final song this morning is In Christ Alone. Would you please stand? In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength. We live in a scandalous society, and there's no doubt we're going to see more scandals. But be mindful of this one thing when you do, that the scandal of the cross has overcome all the scandals that we see and witness in our world today. He has overcome, and because we're in him and have that right perspective, we can overcome 
as well. Receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Go in peace.